0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Most of us are familiar with the concept of a poison pen letter. These unwelcome pieces of correspondence often contain a promise or a warning about what will happen if a whole range of conditions isn't met by the recipient. The authors of these toxic letters pull no punches when it comes to making their intent clear, usually to specific individuals. Hateful and bitter, letters like this could be written in the heat of the moment when a flash of anger, jealousy, or spite overwhelms the writer and they feel compelled to put pen to paper. Or they could be much more considered. Someone may sit and stew on their feelings for a period of time, patiently crafting what they believe is a perfectly worded letter that conveys their message accurately, whatever that may be. Poison pen letters have ended friendships, broken up relationships, and even destroyed families. To make matters worse, the authors of these harsh letters often decide to remain anonymous, for obvious reasons. They then sit back and watch the ensuing drama unfold, reveling in the impact of their twisted handiwork. After all, they do say that the pen is mightier than the sword. The town of Circleville, Ohio is just a half-hour drive from the state capital of Columbus and is a charming and unassuming place. Known for its annual pumpkin show, a tradition that has lasted for over a hundred years, in the 1970s the town of almost 12,000 residents didn't really have any other reason to attract a huge amount of publicity. Like any small community, it was hard to keep anything secret. But in the late 1970s, the quiet town of Circleville, Ohio, found out just how deadly secrets could be. School bus driver Mary Gillespie, her husband Ron, and their kids were your average Circleville residents. They were staples in the community and known as a good, respectable family. So it came as a shock when, in March 1977, Mary received a threatening letter from an anonymous sender. It said, Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house, and I know you have children. This is no joke. Please, take it seriously. Everyone concerned has been notified, and everything will be over soon. The letter was referring to the school superintendent Gordon Massey, and was clearly alleging that Mary was having an affair with him. A second letter arrived a week later. It was even more threatening than the first. "'Call the sheriff. He can't watch you forever. I shall keep ringing. Again, this is no joke. Stay away from him noon as well as night. If I can't get you together and you make a fool of me such as the school has done, I shall come out there and put a bullet in that little girl's head.' Too many think this is a joke. We'll see in time. I know where you live. I've been watching your house. Mary received a third letter a couple of weeks later in early April. This is your last chance to report him. I know you are a pig and will prove it and shame you out of Ohio. How is your little girl? Will she grow up to be like you? Like the previous two letters... This one had also been handwritten in blocky lettering, and there was no return address. Mary decided not to report the incidents, and kept the letters to herself. Mary Gillespie wasn't the only Circleville resident to receive anonymous, menacing letters. It was clear that whoever the writer was, they knew a lot of personal details about the people they targeted. The letters often included threats of going public with the information the mystery author claimed to know. To make things even more creepy, the writer always made sure the reader was aware that they were being watched. Not long after Mary received the third letter, her husband Ron became a target, seemingly by the same person. The letter outlined Mary's supposed relationship with the school superintendent. We must inform you that your wife is having an affair with Mr. Massey. She has chased him until he caught her. Eliminate them both before they eliminate you. Remember. We know where you work and know your truck. No one can help you. Think of your children and their future. Call the school board and report the truth after you finish your investigation. Again, your life is in danger." The couple hoped the letters were simply a cruel prank and that the writer would eventually get bored and stop. But things were about to get a whole lot worse. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Another letter addressed to Ron soon arrived. Gillespie, you've had two weeks and done nothing. You are also a pig. Make her admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on radio, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. Ron and Mary came to suspect that the letters were being written by Ron's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour. When they approached Paul to ask about the disturbing correspondence, he insisted it wasn't him. Ron's sister Karen, Paul's wife, also maintained their innocence. Ron and Mary believed them, but this brought them back to square one. Who could be terrorizing them with these handwritten letters, and why? After some brainstorming, the two couples arrived at one person in particular a man named David Longberry. Longberry was a co-worker of Mary's at one of the schools along her bus route. He had made advances toward her in the past, but she had always rejected him. Believing he was the prankster, they confronted him and demanded that he stop sending the vicious letters. The strategy seemed to work, at least for a brief period. The couple hadn't received a letter for some time, but what came next took the harassment to another level. Large signs started popping up all around town. The message was short, but direct. It claimed that Superintendent Gordon Massey was in a sexual relationship, not with Mary this time, but with her 12-year-old daughter. A few months later, on August 19, 1977, when the phone rang at the Gillespie home, it was Ron that answered. He didn't say a word during the call, but... As he quietly listened to whoever it was on the other end, he was getting visibly angry. He never told Mary or the kids what was said or who the caller was, but it was clear that Ron thought it was the letter writer. Whatever was said, it left Ron furious, and as soon as he hung up the phone, he grabbed his twenty-two caliber revolver and stormed out of the house. Jumping into his pickup truck, he hit the gas pedal and took off. But he didn't get very far. At an intersection not far from the house, he lost control of the truck and crashed into a tree. Sadly, Ron Gillespie died in the collision. In the wreck, authorities found his 22 caliber revolver, which was loaded, but, curiously, there was an empty shell in one of the cylinders. The weapon did not appear to have been fired from inside the truck, and no one in the immediate area reported hearing a gunshot. Ron's death was ultimately declared an accident which apparently upset the anonymous writer, because not long after, several people started to receive letters. One was sent to Circleville Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, accusing him of covering up what was really going on. Another letter also accused the sheriff of mishandling a previous investigation into the local county coroner, Dr. Ray Carroll. Over the years, several local children had accused the doctor of sexual abuse, but it wasn't until 1993 that he was finally charged. He was brought up on eight counts of misconduct, including gross immortality, sex crimes, corruption of a minor, pornography, obscenity, and indecent exposure. The writer clearly blamed the sheriff for not acting sooner, and made their grievances known in the unsigned letters. While none of the envelopes provided a return address, many of them did have a postmark. It seemed whoever was mailing them, they were doing it from the nearby city of Columbus. Some of the envelopes contained inappropriate pictures with explicit language. The text would either be drafted in block lettering or typed, but either way, it was a clear attempt to conceal the author's handwriting. Back to Ron Gillespie's car crash. There were still many unanswered questions. When his blood was tested after the fatal accident, his alcohol level registered one and a half times the legal limit to drive. Yet, Ron was not much of a drinker, and those who knew him said that he never drank to excess. So how did he reach such a high blood alcohol level? Also, where was he going when he drove away in the pickup, and why did he take his gun? When had he fired the revolver, and what was his target? His family insisted that Ron would have never stored it safely away without removing a spent shell. If police concluded that it had not been shot from inside his truck, did he fire it somewhere on his property? Unfortunately, at least for now, speculation is as close as anyone will get to answering the questions surrounding Ron's death. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... With authorities now fully aware of the poison pen situation, Mary was advised not to tamper with any of the letters she was receiving. Investigators were treating the material as evidence and were hoping that they would be able to find fingerprints on the envelope or whatever was inside. By now, other town officials were receiving intimidating mail from the unknown writer, but the usual blocky handwriting had changed. It was only a slight difference from previous letters. But it was noticeable enough to wonder if they were now being written by a different person. Perhaps it was just the writer continuing to disguise their real handwriting. The ongoing mystery became even more intriguing when it was revealed that Mary Gillespie admitted that she had, in fact, been having an affair with Superintendent Gordon Massey. According to reports, she claimed their relationship only began after she and Ron started receiving the letters. While the timing of the affair is debatable, The relationship itself came as little surprise to many in the tight-knit community. As the scandalous revelation became public, reports were also circulating that some of the Circleville letters were signed with the initial W. In a weird coincidence, Gordon Massey's teenage son was named William. Years passed before the writer struck again, and this time it was far more brazen. In February 1983, six years after Ron's death, 39-year-old Mary was driving her usual bus route when she noticed a sign with a crude message referencing her daughter. Upset, Mary pulled the bus over and went to pull down the sign when she noticed a box tied to the post by a string. It appeared the lid to the box had been glued in place by a significant amount of adhesive. Despite being told by police not to tamper with anything from the suspected writer, Mary collected everything from the scene, returned to the bus, and continued her route. When she eventually opened the box, she found a contraption best described as a poorly constructed booby trap. A 25 caliber pistol had been wedged tightly in styrofoam and rigged to shoot when the sign was torn down. Assuming the gun had to be a toy, she decided to take everything to the sheriff's office. The gun was not a toy and investigators confirmed that someone had made an unsuccessful attempt to booby-trap the sign. Whoever it was, they had also tried to grind off the firearm's serial number. Thankfully, that too was unsuccessful, and authorities managed to trace the weapon back to the registered owner. It belonged to none other than Paul Freshour, Ron's brother-in-law. When Paul was brought in for questioning, he seemed genuinely surprised that his gun had been found inside the box, He was adamant that the firearm had been stolen a while ago, but that he had failed to report it. Around the area where the sign had been posted, investigators found footprints other than Mary's, but none was the same size as Paul's. Shortly after the incident, another bus driver along the same route stated that less than half an hour before Mary saw the sign, they noticed a yellow El Camino parked at the spot where the sign was posted. The driver described seeing a heavy-set man standing near the vehicle. The description did not match that of Paul Freshour at all, but, interestingly, it did sound exactly like someone they did know, his ex-wife's brother. The family member the description matched did, in fact, drive a yellow El Camino. Despite the eyewitness pointing to another person, police did not shift their focus away from Paul. When the sheriff's office searched Paul's home, they failed to find any ammunition that matched the gun found in the booby trap. Nor did they locate any materials similar to the ones used in the building of the contraption. In order to eliminate him as a suspect, Paul was required to perform a handwriting test. Following instructions, he copied some of the letters so his writing could be compared with that of the mystery author. Despite the test not being conducted by experts in handwriting analysis and with no evidence linking him to the crimes, the sheriff came to the conclusion that Paul was indeed the Circleville letter writer. To help prove his innocence, Paul agreed to take a lie detector test. He took three polygraph assessments and passed all of them. Yet, with all the signs pointing to someone else, and even though he had solid alibis, Paul was taken into custody and charged with the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. The trial for Paul Freshour started in late October, 1983. During the proceedings, Mary gave evidence that she believed he was the letter writer. Others did too, including his ex-wife, although she admitted her conclusion only came after Mary had found the booby trap. After a brief deliberation, Paul was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison. However, during his incarceration, the letters continued. In March, 1986, several years into his sentence, Paul himself received an anonymous letter. It read, Fresh hour. Now, when are you going to believe that you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago when we set him up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? No one wants you out. No one. The joke is on you. Ha ha. Tell no one of this letter. I saw the paper. Great news. Great. The sheriff loved it. Ha ha. Do you believe it now? Do you?" The letters kept coming. Despite the correspondence being a key part of the prosecution's argument against Paul at trial, his conviction was not overturned once it was established that he, in fact, had not been the writer. In 1993, ten years after his conviction, a local investigative reporter sent a letter in support of Paul's application for parole. The reporter noted that the letter sent while Paul was in prison arrived in mailboxes covering a wide area of the central part of the state. According to his own investigation, he felt the evidence pointed to Paul's ex-wife, Karen. The reporter believed she was the Circleville writer. The letter of support he sent to authorities said, I don't think I have ever met an individual so consumed with such irrational hatred for another. The more I became convinced that she played a major role in putting Paul where he is today. Unfortunately, the reporter's efforts were met with death threats and threats of legal action if he didn't stop the investigation immediately. Paul Freshour was eventually paroled in May 1994 after serving more than 10 years in prison. By that time, The small-town mystery had come to the attention of the producers of the iconic TV series, Unsolved Mysteries. In November, 1994, a week after the show aired the story, a letter arrived at their studio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. It was signed, The Circleville Writer. What stood out about this letter was that the block lettering was distinctly different from previous letters. One thing all the letters did have in common was that instead of using a period at the end of each sentence, the author used colons. This begged the question of whether there was more than just one letter writer. Some reports not only dismiss wholeheartedly the theory that Paul was the writer, but propose that the letters were actually the work of no less than three different people. According to the investigative reporter, One of these was Superintendent Gordon Massey's son, William. And let's not forget that some of the letters were said to have been signed with the initial, W. Of course, this begs the question of who would take such a risk by signing a letter with their initial? Another possible suspect was David Longberry, who Mary and Ron also suspected of sending the original letters. Is it possible that David knew about Mary's affair and tried to embarrass her as punishment for rejecting his advances? The final suspect, as we've already mentioned, was Paul's ex-wife, Karen. It's been suggested that her new boyfriend, not her brother, was the man seen near the El Camino prior to the discovery of the booby-trapped box. Paul, however, disagreed with this theory, stating that, since their divorce, Karen had become devoutly religious. It seemed to be a very protective stance for Paul to take, given he had just served ten years of prison time. Some even suggested that Paul was actually more involved than he claimed, and may have intentionally taken the fall for his ex-wife. To make things even more sordid, the most recent batch of letters included one focusing on Roger Klein, the prosecutor who had put Paul away. The writer said that Klein had got a local schoolteacher pregnant and then arranged to have her murdered. The writer also threatened that if law enforcement didn't launch an investigation, they would mail the bones of the dead baby to police. Another letter from 1994 stated, Please know, letters were before 1977. Ryder almost had another innocent man put in prison. Ha ha. David Longbury would have if the man in prison now had not tried to trick Ryder with Ryder's own writing for homebreaker Gillespie. See what he got? Ha ha. He will knock it out of prison. Dr. Radcliffe will take his place. There was foul play. The cryptic letter continued. They are still together. Two teenage boys seen what happened. You always use high speed for elimination for someone if you must get rid of them. You don't fire shots for drinking. Over the years, Paul Freshour has written to the FBI on several occasions, providing numerous supporting documents in an effort to clear his name. Part of what makes the Circleville letters so intriguing is that people in the community continued to receive them for 20 years following the initial letters. This amounted to more than 1,000 letters over the decades, but today, less than half a dozen are publicly available. Paul Freshour died in June 2012 at age 70, still professing his innocence. To this day, the official identity of the Circleville letter writer remains a mystery. I'll be back next week with another episode.